from Everything Financial. Welcome to the Your Money Personal Finance Podcast. I am John Abbott. This is Episode 9. We're joined by Peter Sashecki, President of Everything Financial and Everything Mortgages as well, in his usual host chair and a very special guest uh, today on Episode 9. We have Mr. Stuart Zuckerman, uh, the family law practice. And Stuart, we have uh, a lot of questions to come your way, and we're very thankful for your time today. But first, before we get into that, and I know Peter uh, we'll introduce you further. We just want to say thank you to everybody for checking out episode eight of the podcast. And as always, you can follow us uh, online on all your favorite podcast platforms, including our YouTube channel as well. I encourage you to subscribe as well as provide some feedback. And you can ask questions as well, provide a, a link a little later on in the show. But Peter, I'll uh, turn it over to you to further introduce our special guest today. Thank you. Thanks, John. And I want to thank Stuart for taking the time today. Stuart has over 30 years of experience in family law, also does mediation, arbitration, and now parenting coordinating too. You can find Stuart online at his website at zuckermanlaw.ca or call him at 604-575-5464. Great to have you on the podcast, Stuart. I expect that there are a lot of family law questions going to happen, a lot of things going to come up, and you have a lot of experience over the last 30 years. And don't take this personally but I hope I don't ever need you in the future. Yeah, that's a common common response to most people. Nice to meet you. Hope I never need you. But I will call you first before my spouse does. Yes. I'm here. Thanks for that. Thanks for the plug. I thought we would try to uh, focus the discussion today on financial issues that arise in family law on separations. So focusing on some income tax aspects of uh, division of assets and spousal support. I like it, Stuart. And let's start right there. Uh, of course, setting the scene, maybe we don't have to, uh, considering we're still in the calendar year of 2020. So everybody certainly knows uh, the challenges that have uh, taken place from the pandemic that we still uh, continue to live in and live through. But uh, previous to that, divorce rates were already on the incline. I think uh, many people can relate to, to being uh, potentially housed with their uh, spouse or partner a little bit longer than they anticipated as to maybe providing some new challenges along the way. Uh, so certainly this is a time where more people may be coming to you at Zuckerman Law uh, for your services and wanting to know how that impacts their finances, which is why we're here today and uh, why we bring you the Your Money Personal Finance podcast. So lots that goes into the divorce rate and separation agreements and maybe separation mandates at certain times as well, Stuart. Yeah, well, there's no question our firm has seen a 300% increase in uh, new clients requesting uh, initial consultations during this pandemic since March. And uh, we're hearing that from divorce lawyers all across Canada, that there's an increase not only in incidents of spousal violence, spousal abuse, but also an increase in just the number of people who kind of can't take living with each other anymore and are making queries about divorce. So it is an unfortunate time in the country and I suppose in the world because the same stats are happening in China and other countries as well where there was a, a, a shutdown uh, where divorce rates increase. So we're definitely seeing that. You know, one of the, the first concerns that people often deal with when they're separating is the financial concern. Um, you typically have one spouse who's the breadwinner and one spouse who may work but not earn as much. You know, the, what the, the lower income earning spouse has been financially dependent on the higher income earning spouse throughout the marriage to pay the mortgage and the hydro, the internet, et cetera. And perhaps the lower earning income spouse contributes to the groceries or uh, various other expenses, but it's still dependent primarily on uh, the main breadwinner. And so what typically happens when couples separate is the spouse who was the main contributor says, okay, well, if we're separating, I'm not going to contribute anymore. 
And now the lower income earning spouse needs to uh, go to court or negotiate an agreement to get spousal support. And the family law provisions of both the BC Family Law Act and the Federal Divorce Act do deal for uh, with uh, the entitlement to spousal support or alimony on a marriage breakdown. And so spousal support uh, is a situation where the higher income earning spouse pays a monthly amount of money to the lower income earning spouse. That payment by the higher income earning spouse is tax deductible to the payor, and it's taxable as regular income to the recipient. And we use something called the, uh, most judges and lawyers use a program called Divorce Mate to calculate the after-tax impact uh, of the payment of and the receipt of spousal support. And the idea is that in a long-term marriage, the parties will both be left with a very similar uh, net disposable income, or NDI. So after looking at the impact of the tax deductibility of the alimony and the impact of the taxes payable on the support, if the parties have been together over 20 years, typically that NDI is 50-50, where both parties, both couples are left, or both spouses are left with the exact same after-tax income after accounting for uh, spousal support. So that's the idea of alimony or support. And you you certainly, I suppose you certainly hope that everything's amicable, but it uh, doesn't always mean that it is. However, regardless, it's, it's the information that you provide really that's going to help both parties moving forward. And I think uh, that's the key cog that you provide, Stuart, is, uh, you know, trying to uh, once again, sort through all this. And I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you have the patience for that, but uh, we're glad that you do. Um, as far as the, the tax concerns go, why don't we expand that a little bit? Can you get into deductibility? I heard you mention that uh, with spousal support, but including uh, you know, the, the lump sum or the periodic, uh, how it's kind of divvied out. And then there's the third, third party situation as well. It's a little right. bit tricky. Right. So Spousal support is only deductible to the payor and taxable to the recipient if it's paid in periodic monthly payments. Uh, so, and that's the most common way that spousal support is paid, agreed to, or ordered by the court. There is something called lump sum support where you pay a lump sum upfront to your spouse, and then that spouse will waive or release, or their claims for support will be dismissed. So they only get that single lump sum. Typically, that lump sum is quite significant, often over $100,000 because it's spousal support. The duration of support is normally based on the duration of the relationship from cohabitation to separation. So uh, if the relationship is 20 years, the duration of support would be a minimum of 10 years, and it could be for lifetime. Uh, But it's typically at least half of the duration to the full length of the duration. So uh, doing it in a lump sum is usually quite costly, and you lose the deductibility for spousal support. When you pay it in a lump sum, you cannot deduct it from your income tax, and the recipient does not have to declare it. One thing that's important, you know, in most of these cases, people are able to negotiate spousal support by way of a separation agreement. And uh, when you do a separation agreement, you have an added advantage because under our Income Tax Act, The Act allows couples to go back one year before their separation and amend their income tax filings for that prior year to reflect any arrangements for spousal support. And you can imagine many couples, when they make the decision to separate, they still live in the same home under the same roof, sometimes for six months, eight months, sometimes for two years until they actually are able to sell their home, divide the proceeds and live separate. So for economic reasons, they live under the same roof, even though they're no longer sleeping together, they're no longer having a spousal-like relationship. 
And what that section of the Income Tax Act allows is that when they're doing their separation agreement, so for example, if I have a couple uh, right now prior to January 1st, 2021, negotiating a separation agreement, the, the husband and the wife can agree that, look, for the year 2020, I've paid, uh, and for 2019, even though we agreed to separate in 2019, we've been together, and I've paid the mortgage of uh, 2000 a month, I've paid the internet, hydro, cable, and other utilities of 1000 a month, I've paid the property tax, the insurance. So I've paid you, or I've paid on behalf of us, 4000 a month uh, on these expenses. And I want to call that spousal support for the last two years, which will give me a $48,000 uh, deduction on my income tax returns. And you, my spouse, will have to claim that 48000 as as your income as spousal support for those years. Now, the upside to that is if the payor is in a higher tax bracket. So if you have a payor with an income of, let's say, over $150,000, where he's paying 52% combined federal and provincial tax, and his wife is earning thirty to 40000 and paying a combined marginal rate of, I don't know, 22% or 24% on her taxes, that's a tax savings for the family because he's going to get back 52% of that $48,000 spousal support deduction for each of the prior two years. Uh, and his wife is not going to pay 52% in taxes. She might pay 28 or 33% combined rate. So there's going to be a leftover amount. And typically when we make those agreements, we agree that the leftover amount after the husband uses his tax refund to pay the wife's tax bill will be split between the parties. So the only person that loses is the federal government. The two spouses end up netting more money than they otherwise would have netted by reason of being able to amend and refile their prior year's tax return and including in their separation agreement those third-party payments as spousal support for the last two years. Um, so that's a very tax-advantageous situation uh, when a couple's going to separate. Stuart Zuckerman from Zuckerman Law and Peter Sashaki from Everything Financial. Peter, uh, I'll just sidestep to you for a moment. Uh, what changes on your end when you have clients that come in that are going through this and uh, you hear how much work Peter has to do um, uh, for his clients? Uh, how do you adjust along the way and really take a look at the portfolio at that point? Well, we're always working with the lawyer who's going through this. And the one big advice we and give people and the fact that I've been through this before is we tell people not to get emotional when they're making the decisions about money. And Stuart brought up a great point there about going back and deducting things. And when people are first hit with that idea, and if they're emotional and it's not amicable, that's where the one spouse will go, well, I'm not going to do that. And I don't agree to that. And you have to really take them a step back and show them the net dollars in your pocket. The other thing is the lump sum, which I try and guard people against because why would you want to give out a huge lump sum of money and eliminate a lot of that purchasing power you have? And there's the other thing. What if, God forbid, you didn't live that long? Well, then you've paid all this money up front to your ex when maybe you're developing a new family or business opportunities going along along the way and you've got rid of all that money. The other thing we always talk to both spouses about whoever's paying the money, is insuring your alimony with life insurance. So have life insurance on the spouse that if they do pass away, you continue to get paid. Those are all good points. I, I agree with all of them. Uh, that I tend to agree uh, with him on the spousal, the lump sum spousal support. I usually advise against it. It's not only an issue of uh, your life expectancy. So you may be paying, you know, when you're paying lump sum you're basically paying the next 12 years or 20 years worth of support all in one payment. So yes, that, that's an issue if you end up not surviving 
10 to 20 years, then you've overpaid and your estate has less. That's one problem. Another problem is if your income changes in the future, your spousal support would be reduced. Spousal support is always based on the differential between the, the two spouses' annual income. So if one person earns 200000 a year and the other person earns 50000 a year, that differential is 150000 a year. And the spousal support payable is based on that 150000 a, a year. So if in three years the economy changes or your business changes or you sell your business, you start a new business, and instead of earning 200000 a year, you drop to 100000 a year or 110000 a year, Obviously, your support obligation would normally reduce, but if you've paid it all up front as lump sum spousal support, you can't go back and ask for a refund of what you've already paid. So it is you are better off making the monthly payments, both for the tax deductibility reasons and for the fact that it accounts for your income over time um, and your life expectancy. Uh, Stuart, uh, just to expand on uh, what we were, the avenue we were going down there, and I think it's uh, so important for people that, hey, listen, maybe they're considering this in theory and uh, haven't quite got to that big life-changing decision yet. Uh, maybe they're proactive and they're actually putting some things in front of them, or it's completely reactive and, hey, they need to get this thing done now, but how the heck do I keep some money in my pockets? Uh, deductions, tax deductibility, uh, including the legal fees. Uh, can you expand on that with us, Stuart? Yeah. So under the Income Tax Act, legal fees that are incurred by a spouse either to obtain spousal support, to negotiate for spousal support, or to enforce an order or an agreement for spousal support are all tax deductible. That's all the legal fees, disbursements, and taxes incurred with your lawyer is tax deductible to the recipient of support. Unfortunately, uh, looking at the ITR bulletins, I still haven't seen anything that says that uh, that is uh, that the expenses incurred by the payor uh, of spousal support are deductible. It's limited to the recipient. So, the, but that is an important thing that when you're hiring a lawyer, um, you you may want to uh, ask the lawyer to make sure they're when they're recording their billable time that they're tracking what portion of their time is related to spousal support in order to get a letter from the end from them at the end of the file that you can submit to CRA to say, I spent this much money in this calendar year on enforcing, obtaining, or uh, negotiating spousal support, and that'll be deductible. And speaking of the CRA, uh, how do they go about determining uh, the child tax benefits? Uh, you know, something that uh, parents can bank on coming in that may be removed or, I guess, uh, potentially divvied up uh, and dependent tax credits. How do you navigate that as far as government uh, checks are concerned? It's a big issue and it's confusing. I've had a case where a fellow was acting on his own. I had to go to court several times to fix the problem that was created because the judges don't necessarily know the law with respect to the ITR or the Income Tax Act in doing this. So uh, what happens when people have children, uh, typically, even if they have joint custody or joint guardianship, and even if they have 50-50 care, there's something called the child support guidelines, which sets out how much you pay per month based on your annual income. And if you have if you have one parent that has the children more than the other, then the the parent who has them lesser is the payor, and that person pays a fixed monthly amount based on their annual income. But if both par- parents have the children 50-50, then under the Act, the way it works is, let's say the husband's income is 80000 a year, and his child support payment would be $800 a month. Uh, for the two children. And let's say that the wife's income is 40,000 a year and her payment under the act would be 400 a month to the, to the husband for the 50, 50 care. So what, what ends up happening is there's an offset. So the husband says, Oh, I owe you 800. You owe me 400. I'll just pay you a check for 400 a month. When you do that, 
CRA basically says, if you are the person paying child support, then you cannot claim the child as a dependent and you cannot get the child tax benefit. Only the recipient of child support can have those two benefits. However, if you have 50-50 care and your agreement or your order actually says that instead of doing the set off, if it says, dad, you actually cut a check of $800 a month every month to your ex and mom, you cut a check every month to your ex for $400. So there's two checks going each way. And then if you have in the agreement a term that says in odd number of years, mom gets to claim the child as a dependent and gets the child tax benefit. In even number of years, dad gets to get the claim the child as a dependent and get the child tax benefit. CRA is okay with that and will allow that to fly as long as both parties are paying checks to each other. But if one party is just paying that set-off amount, then that person, even if the agreement or the order says that they're allowed to claim the child as a dependent in odd number of years, CRA will not allow it. Um, so, and, and judges aren't really cognizant of that, the, the fact that the checks have to be paid to each other in order for that to work. So it's a problem I've come across in many cases where the parties agreed to alternate claiming the child as a dependent, uh, but the CRA would not allow it. We've had to go back to court to make amendments and variations, which is costly. So, you know, getting it right the first time is important when you're doing stuff like that. Just a question, Stuart, is it, is it, now this is going back to my days way back when, but with we talked earlier in the episode about lump sum payments for spouse support. When it comes to children and child support, and I've had people say, well, why don't I just do a lump sum payment? And then, you know, the child's 13, I'm paying whatever I'm going to owe for the next five years. But can the the spouse who would be receiving that payment, can't they then go to the, and this was going back a ways, but family maintenance and say, oh, well, my husband is making X, or my ex-husband is making X. And can't they still go after monthly child support, even though you've paid them a lump sum? Yes, that's true. Uh, so we always advise against lump sum child support uh, because the, the law uh, in throughout Canada and in, and in BC, the case law has said that because child support is the right of the child, when, the, when a parent of that child negotiates for lump sum support, they don't have the right to waive and release future claims for child support when the payor's income changes or when the child's needs change uh, or when their own needs change such that they can no longer meet the needs of the child. So even when a parent has received lump sum support, they can come back or a subsequent guardian could come back and seek a variation or an increase or a monthly payment of child support. And the court will typically uphold that and say, you know, you shouldn't have agreed to lump sum because it doesn't eliminate your obligation to pay support for your child. And child support itself for a child goes it goes to the age of majority which in bc is 19 but it continues after 19 for so long as the child is dependent on a parent by reason of illness disability or other cause which includes going to school so you i have cases where child support is uh, frequently being paid for 23 24 year olds still pursuing their first degree and i even have a case where the child is 45 years old and is still the parent is still getting child support because the child has severe autism and other issues which make it impossible for the child to withdraw from dependence on his mother and so the father is still paying child support for a 45 year old child so you know child support does continue beyond that 8 19 or even 23 in certain circumstances and people have to be cognizant of that Important information uh, to, to get to, and uh, we have so many more questions for you, Stuart. Uh, we'll save those for another day. Uh, we so much uh, appreciate your time. Again, he's Stuart Zuckerman from Zuckerman Family Law. You can find him at zuckermanlaw.ca and 
5464. Uh, Peter, I know uh, you and, and Stuart have had a connection for a long time, but so enjoyed being able to catch up with each of you gentlemen. And uh, we're going to do this again, right, Peter? Oh, definitely, because there's a ton more questions on family maintenance, kids going to school. Um, and in, unfortunately, in, in my work, um, and I've referred people and said, I can't tell them, call Stuart before your spouse does. It's very true on the Amy ads. And no one wants to go through this stuff. So when you can go to a professional and they try and mediate and, and with Stuart doing mediation, I mean, that's what I did way back when. And it just makes things easier. And the advice we give people is both get the legal advice, go to the mediation, but also, and Stuart mentioned this, put the children first. And so many times people use the children as pawns and we try and warn them, don't do that. It's just going to hurt the children later on. Put your differences aside, even if you do, it's not amicable. Put the children first. And you know what? If you take the emotion out of the money decisions, it makes things easier. So I'm looking forward to doing one of these again with Stuart, where we can talk about lots of other topics and maybe we'll get off divorce and we'll talk about other legal matters in the home, which is, you know, can help people out with their finances and their legal issues. Look forward to it. Questions from Peter or towards Stuart for his next visit uh, can be sent to your money at everythingfinancial.com. Uh, this is episode nine of the Your Money Personal Finance Podcast. He is Stuart Zuckerman from Zuckerman Family Law and ZuckermanLaw.ca. And Peter Sushecki from Everything Financial. Thank you for watching and uh, listening to us. Uh, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platforms, including our channel on YouTube. And uh, thank you for being part of today's podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys.